I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm, uh, I look forward to an opportunity to meet you. If you have a Bible near you, uh, and, and I, I hope that you do, please turn to John chapter 13, uh, which is the chapter before our passage this morning. The passage that Sam just read to us was chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. But let's start in chapter 13. Chapter 13 of John is a very difficult, terrible, horrible, no good, uh, very bad evening in the life of the disciples. Uh, There's four sections to John chapter 13, and each one of these sections is a heartbreak. First of all, in John chapter 13, the first section is the famous Last Supper, verses 1 to 20. And by all accounts, it was a bumbling, fumbling fiasco. There was not just a foot washing. There was a whole lot of sticking your foot in your mouth on the part of the disciples. Um, They got it wrong over and over. They just kept saying the wrong things. It's like being invited to a dinner party and somebody's telling a story that you think is a joke, but it's true about their mother. And you laugh and everybody else looks at you like you're a jerk. Um, They just kept doing this kind of stuff over and over. And then in the next section of John chapter 13, this is verses 21 to 30. Jesus, not the disciples, but Jesus starts to get agitated. And he's clearly and visibly upset and hurt. And the disciples see this happening. And then suddenly he tells them why. He lets them know the awful news that one of them is a traitor. And they're, they're utterly dumbfounded. Uh, so, and then suddenly they, some of them catch this weird little exchange that occurs between Jesus and Judas, and they're not sure what's going on and what it has to do with what he just said. And then suddenly Judas gets up and he leaves and he goes out into the night. And it's all just very upsetting and confusing. And then in the midst of all of this, the third section of John 13, this is verses 31 to 35. Jesus tells his disciples the worst news possible. He tells them he's about to leave them. And they're going to try to find him. And they're going to try to follow him. But it won't work. They won't be able to go with him. They won't be able to find him. And with that bombshell on the table, we get to the last section of John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38, where Jesus tells Peter, who's the most confident and outgoing of all the disciples, He tells Peter, in the midst of all the coming disaster, Peter is going to deny him. And so by the time we arrive at our passage for this morning, which is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, the disciples are sinking into despair. They followed Jesus to Jerusalem knowing that it's dangerous, knowing that there's very tense issues going on, knowing that the authorities in Jerusalem are out to kill Jesus. So they followed him there at risk of their own lives, and they've done it because of how much they love him and how loyal to him they are. And then they get there, and they're, they're about to celebrate their, their 
best celebration of the whole year, the Passover, and they have this meal, and it's supposed to be like this moment of joy and celebration in the midst of all this danger. Instead, it's a disaster. I mean, it's like uh, somebody comes home from war or something, and you're having this huge celebration feast, and everything goes wrong. And people keep messing up and saying the wrong things and a big fight breaks out in the family and somebody's betraying somebody and somebody is arguing and it it was just a disaster of a night. And here are the disciples and they are just sinking down into despair. So when we get to chapter 14, this curtain of disillusionment is closing over them. Shame is rising up. There's a fear growing that everything's falling apart and they're going to be all alone. And with that in your mind, that in your imagination, listen to what Jesus says. John 14 verse 1. He looks at those disciples with those feelings, those experiences, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I mean, can you imagine what that must have felt in that moment? How good that must have been, right? Chaos is breaking out. The group is falling apart. We need to hear those words from Jesus ourselves. I need to hear them. Over the last year, my heart has been greatly troubled. I've been overwhelmed by a fear, a stalking, overwhelming, debilitating fear. It wasn't the fear of death. I've told you all the story about when I was in the valley of the shadow of death, how the Lord was so kind to me, and and he took away all fear. By God's grace, he delivered me, but there's been another fear, and it's something that makes me restless And it gives me this deep inner agitation. Do you know what it's like to have a monster lurking in the corner of your thoughts? A hurt and a fear so big that you're afraid to even glance at it, but its shadow is always there. It's always in the corner of your vision. It's always right under the surface of whatever you're doing or thinking. Do you know what it's like to not want to go to bed at night? but to distract yourself until you fall asleep? Do you know what it's like when you wake up in the middle of the night and it's there? And when it's daytime, you want to just find distractions. That's what I've been going through. And it's what it's the kind of state the disciples are in. What about you? Have you learned of your own darkness? Have you been hurt by others in, in ways that You just can't get away from, have you ever been all alone? That's what the disciples are going through as they despair. They're overcome by this impending departure of Jesus and the fact that they won't be able to find him. And one of them is a traitor and one of them will deny him. And in the darkness of that despair, Jesus reaches out to them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also 
in me. It's as if Jesus is saying, I know this is hard, I know this is depressing, but please don't go under. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't be too troubled. I know you have discovered you can't trust your friends, and if you're wise, you've discovered you can't trust yourself, but please remember the living God in whom you hope can be completely trusted, and remember me, I am trustworthy. Don't give up. Don't be too troubled. It's what you're going through is so hard. You're about to go through the worst thing you can imagine, but you don't have to drown. You see, Jesus is offering the disciples not a way out of the sadness and the despair. He's offering them a way through the sadness and the depression and the discouragement, and the way through is to trust Jesus. He's saying, look, you're drowning right now. Take your eyes off of yourself for just a minute. Off of your mistakes. Off of your weakness. Off of your sins. Take your eyes off the broken places in your own hearts and lives. My father is here. He's alive and well. He is trustworthy. And I am here. And you can trust me. Turn to me. This is such a good verse of scripture to memorize. I hope that you would memorize it if you haven't. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's the antidote to a troubled heart. So often, no matter how much we've experienced trusting God in the past, we bump into a moment where we can't. That's what I'm going through. I was in the valley of the shadow of death and it was just easy to trust him. Why is this other thing I'm going through so hard to trust? There's no rhyme or reason behind this stuff. Have you noticed? Like you can have great faith in something really huge and then this little thing is like destroying you. But whenever you find yourself in that moment where your heart is so troubled that you're coming undone, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Well, how do I do that, Jesus? Believe in God. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then over the next five verses, here we find Jesus giving us three reasons that we can put our trust in him in the middle of the storm when we need to find a way to a safe port. First of all, in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? What he's doing is he's telling the disciples, look, yes, I'm going to die. But my death is going to do something. I'm leaving you for a reason. And I will not forget you. And you must trust me. You must trust that my death will accomplish something. I'm going to die for you, and I'm going to do something for you. Now, what is it that he's going to do for you? Then he starts talking about my father's house. Do you know what? There was only one other time in John's gospel where Jesus talks about my father's house, and it's in chapter 2, verse 16, when he's in the temple, and it's full of people selling ox and, and pigeons and sheep and exchanging money, and he makes a whip, and he drives the people out of the temple, and he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I'm going to my father's house? He's talking about the temple, but here's the catch. To the ancient Jewish people, the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. That's what the temple was. It was the place where heaven came to earth. And so Jesus is saying, look, 
You know that thing that for centuries our people have had the gift of, the temple, and in the midst of it is the Holy of Holies, and it's this place where heaven comes to earth? I'm going to explode that. I'm going to go make that so big. It's going to cover the whole earth. There's going to be room for everybody. I'm going to open the door to this expansive integration of heaven and earth. So he's assuring his disciples, my death is going to do something that's worth it. I'm not abandoning you. I'm going to die in order to open the door to a whole new creation that will be a place where you don't wake up in the middle of the night afraid anymore. I'm going to open the door to heaven coming to earth so that there's no more tears. There's no more betrayal by people we love. There's no more abandonment. There's no more despair. There's no more discouragement. I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth where heaven and earth will be fully integrated, where there will be no more hell in this earth. There will be heaven on earth and there will be room for everyone in this new creation in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's what he says to them in verse two. And he says, this is what you can, when you are drowning in despair, remember I'm gonna make all things new. That's what I'm accomplishing. And then in verse three, he gives a second reason. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Not only am I going to open the door to a completely renovated, healed, tear-free, despair-free, loneliness-free, transformed world, I'm going to come for you and take you to that place. Now think about this for a minute. Remember, the disciples are freaking out. And Jesus is offering them a way to be delivered from troubled hearts, despair and discouragement. And what he offers them is this. Number one, I am going to make all things new. There will be an end to suffering. There will be a world renewed where there is no more pain or sorrow. And number two, I will take you there. I will deliver you to that renewed creation. Now, how does this help us when we're overwhelmed and we're, our hearts are troubled, and we're despairing and discouraging. Well, well, think about this. Jesus is showing us that our life on earth, with all of its joys and sorrows, its good days and its bad days, he's showing us that we must learn to let the return of Jesus and the new creation give direction to our lives in this troubled world. The return of Jesus in the healing of the creation must give us direction now. It's not just a place we get to one day. It's something that must give us comfort now. It must become the goal that we're striving toward now. It must become the secret power behind our ability not to drown in our troubled hearts. Let me get very concrete. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Look at it this way. Some of you, either it's you or you know people 
who have a deep sense of some serious problems plaguing our society. Things like the catastrophic environmental crisis that we're facing or the equally catastrophic issues around race and income disparity and the political mess. Think of the people, whether it's you or people you know, that that just dominates their thinking. They're very tied into that. And the list is long and there's a, it's very alarming. And you are right to be deeply troubled by these things. We should be. But hear what Jesus is offering as a solution to drowning into a troubled heart over these things. His solution is that he's going to solve it. That he's going to make all things new. That his kingdom is going to come on earth as in heaven. He will return to save his church and rescue his followers and heal this world. So here's the catch. When the, when the problems of the world dominate your imagination and your thinking, and you're doing so much hard work to see them clearly, you need to do the equally hard work to recognize that Jesus gives us a way to not drown under the weight of them. The way out of discouragement and despair when it comes to the problems of the world is not activism. Answer is hope. The hope of the return of Christ. And here's the catch. There is a profound difference between being fundamentally driven by the brokenness and being fundamentally driven by the hope. One, when you're driven ultimately by the brokenness, That produces an activism that destroys other people. It sees them as the threat and the enemy. And it dehumanizes others. And it results in cynicism. And an ends justifies the means kind of approach. But when you're fully focused and you see the problems and they break your heart, but you're driven by the hope, now you can can have an activism that doesn't dehumanize others, that doesn't descend into cynicism and sarcasm and rudeness and misbehavior. So in verse two, Jesus shows us that we can trust him. When we are discouraged and afraid and overwhelmed, we need to put our trust in him that he is making all things new and he will deliver us to that world. And in verses 4 to 6, he gives us a third reason to trust him when our hearts are troubled. And it's this. There's no other way out. There's no other way to peace. There's no other way to tranquility. There's no other way to rest. At the end of the day, Jesus is the only way out of a troubled heart. John chapter 14, verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we actually don't. We don't even know what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way to get there? And Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thank goodness for honest, doubting Thomas. Because if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have one of the best verses in all of the Bible. See, if you're one of those people for whom faith is really hard, God has gifts for the world through your struggles. Don't be afraid of them. But notice what happens here. 
when your heart is troubled and you need to take your eyes off yourself, off the monster in the corner, when you need to look away for a minute from your own mistakes and your own weakness and your own sins and the troubles you're drowning in, the broken places in our world and in our own hearts and lives, in those moments, look at Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He is the way to peace. He's the way to the creator, our father. He is the way to safety and rescue. He's the only way. Believing in him, trusting in him, following him. He's the only way to rest, the only way home. And he's utterly reliable. So many other ways will present themselves to you, but they will prove to be unreliable. They are dead ends. Think of the ways you've tried to cope. Whether it's a lot of work or alcohol or drugs or sex or making more money or distracting yourself with pleasures or staying up all night on Netflix. Think of all these ways. Jesus is the only way, the only reliable way. And because of that, he is the life that is from God. He's true life. He's really living. Here's the good news. You don't have to labor to find the way. If you're in the church, you know the way. You know the way to the truth and the life. It's Jesus, only Jesus. Stick with Jesus and his word and his church and you will be on the path. You'll be on the right way. Only God can lead you to God. Only God can lead you to himself. In the mid-15th century, Thomas Akempis famously wrote that when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he's saying, look, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way, Jesus says, you should follow. The truth you should believe. The life you should hope for. I am the inviolable way. The infallible truth. The indestructible life. I am the straightest way. The sovereign truth. The authentic life. Blessed and eternal. In Jesus, in other words, we have Everything we need to make sense of our lives. That we have the rope thrown out to us in our despair. In John chapter 14 verse 6. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes from the Father except through me. He's not commanding anything. He's begging. He's pleading with us. He wants to, to tear and turn our hearts from Everything we trust in except him and him alone. And I know, boy, do I know how hard this can be when you're going down. In fact, it's impossible. It's impossible for us to stir up this kind of trust in Jesus when our hearts are so troubled. But if we listen to the word of hope from the Lord of the church proclaimed constantly in churches that are faithful to Jesus, Jesus knows our situation. He knows that we have good reasons to despair. He doesn't say stop being troubled by saying it's not a big deal. No, it's a huge deal. That's why we drown in this stuff. Here in John chapter 14, he's begging us, he's pleading with you and me to hold fast to him when we're falling to pieces, when we're dying of thirst, when we're in the dark, when we're lost and overwhelmed. In the difficulties you're facing, whatever they are, 
and you can't see the way ahead and you can't see a way through. No, there is one way. Put your trust in Jesus. In this passage, you can almost hear Jesus saying, what do I have to do to convince you of this? C.S. Lewis was um, a professor in England and a Christian, and he wrote this amazing set of stories called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in one of them, The Silver Chair, um, in chapter 2, he tells a story that I think gets at what's going on here better than anything I've said so far. There's a girl in the story. Her name is Jill. She's entered a strange and magical country at the top of a high mountain, and after wandering for some time in search of water to drink, Jill encounters a lion who's lying between her and a deliciously babbling stream of water. Jill is terrified of the lion, but she is dreadfully thirsty. The lion asks her if she's thirsty. And she replies that she's dying of thirst. The lion says, well, then drink. But Jill's too afraid to venture near the lion and ask if he would mind leaving while she gets a drink. She quickly realizes the presumption of her request. And Lewis writes, quote, she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Meanwhile, the sounds of the running water are making her more and more thirsty. So Jill asks the lion if he will promise not to do anything to her if she comes to the stream and drinks. But the lion responds, I will make no such promises. So Jill, driven frantic with thirst, comes a step nearer without noticing it. When she realizes she's gotten closer to the lion, she asks, do you ever eat girls? And the lion responds, I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and whole realms. So Jill tells the lion she dare not come near to drink then. And the lion says, but you will die of thirst. Jill accidentally comes another step. And then she says, well, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And the lion replies, there are no other streams. It is hard to turn and trust to Jesus. And part of the reason it's hard is he's not some cuddly grandfather. He is the almighty God, the sovereign of all creation, and he devours girls and boys and women and men and whole empires. And so part of our fear and turning and trust to him is right. But there is no other way. There's no other stream. There's no other truth. There's no other life. Let's pray.